Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Maya Mikdashi, Associate Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, and a lecturer in the Middle East Studies program at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. We'll be talking about her book, Sextarianism, Sovereignty, Secularism, and the State in Lebanon, recently published by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much, Maya, for joining us today. Thank you, Elise. I'm really um, looking forward to having this conversation with you. I'm a big fan of this podcast. Oh, thanks so much. And I've been looking forward to your book. So it's really a treat for me to have you here. Um, So to start off, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a sense of how you conceived of this book? Uh, Sure. (laughs) Uh, So I'm uh, I'm trained as an anthropologist. um, And... um, I would say, uh, you know, I'm, I consider myself uh, an interdisciplinary scholar of the state, of law, of archives, and of sexual difference. Uh, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Rutgers University. And um, I work, you know, in, in different locations. This book is centered um, in Lebanon, where I'm also from. And... Um, I'm a co-founding editor of Jadalia, uh, which is a sort of, uh, it's, it's a weird thing to describe, but it's like a, a, a sort of venue for public facing scholarship um, and scholarly uh, writing in general on the transnational Middle East. And, uh, you know, I started conceptualizing this book. I mean, you know, this is a book that's also based or comes out of the archive that is my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I started conceiving of it and conceptualizing it when I was in graduate school. And it, at the time, it really had to do with uh, religious conversion 
and secularism and religion. And, you know, when I was in graduate school, these were and continue to be really formative debates on um, religion and secularism uh, and, you know, the nation state. And I, I really got interested in the question of conversion, religious conversion in Lebanon, partly because of uh, a lot of it has a kind of uh, bureaucratic blasé nature. And when um, I remember a conversation at a grad student seminar uh, where somebody mentioned religious conversion uh, in the Middle East, and it was a class on Islamic law and secularism. And, and you know, somebody else said, oh, this is uh, so dangerous, right? Like if someone re- converts their religion or converts out of Islam, it opens them up to all kinds of legal sanction or violence. And I knew that in my specific case um, of Lebanon, that, uh, you know, conversions do happen, reconversions do happen. uh, And they're mostly acceptable when they're grounded in a kind of sexual difference or um, understanding of different laws and the rights and duties that are given to uh, different gendered uh, people in those laws. So that's kind of how it started. I started thinking about how religious conversion would offer us into a a window into uh, this debate on secularism, religion, uh, through sort of a vehicle of sexual difference. That's how I started conceptualizing it. Then when I, um, you know, it continued to change when I was doing my fieldwork. And that had partly to do with the access that I had. So I went into the field thinking that I would be working with personal status institutions more. And then when I was given, granted access to the Court of Cassation, um, which is the highest sort of court of appeals, and its archive, this, this court specifically sort of gave me a systemic view of the legal system and the personal status system. Um, and then that, you know, changed the focus of my research uh, to focus on the state institution and the systemic nature, system, the, whole, the entire system of uh, personal status and how it's integrated into different bodies of law and different and, and the institutions of the state. So then it continued to shift, right, continued to get sort of refined. And I have to say, this access also allowed me um, to reflect and kind of subvert some of the different, I would say, uh, possibilities, but also contradictions of access to different personal status institutions in Lebanon that were about my own sect and gender, right? Um, So having access to the state archive, you know, opened up different possibilities and different lenses. Uh, And then it continued to be refined. And honestly, since I started working in a gender studies department and teaching in gender studies, you know, it was being open to a really um, fascinating, lively, theoretical and uh, political conversation that continued to inform the conceptualization of the book. Wow, thanks so much, Maya. I think, you know, it's very cool to hear how a book has not just one origin story, but multiple ones and continues to evolve throughout one's career. So thanks so much for sharing that. And I want to jump right into the book. And 
you know, as a reader, I could tell that Samira's case in particular was one that stayed with you and correct me if I'm wrong, but you bring us into sectarianism through her story in the book. So how did she, as well as others you introduced to us throughout the book, lead you to conceptualize sectarianism? Uh, that's a that's a great question, and I think you're absolutely right that Samira uh, or Samira's case really, and Samira and Samira are different names. So in my mind, it's Samira, <laughs> but uh, you know that her case really stayed with me, and um, you know her case is actually her son's case technically, um, and I would say it really. Uh, you know, sometimes when you're doing research, you come across something that really weighs heavily on you because you think there's no way that I can actually communicate what this means to me or what this could possibly mean. And that was this case. Um, you know, it's like hundreds of pages long. And um, so I think in three ways, I would say this case really stayed and weighed on me. Uh, you know, for one thing, I think again, the nature of where I was accessing these cases, which is the highest court of appeals. Um, and even within that high court of appeals, like the, the plenary assembly of that cassation court. So we're talking, you know, really uh, the highest, highest possible case uh, court for citizens. Uh, by nature of the fact that these cases reach this court, they're always very complicated. They have to be, right? If you think about any kind of Supreme Court or highest court, cassation court, in order to reach the stage where the decision can affect jurisprudence, they're often, you know, complicated cases with uh, huge and very uh, felt consequences. So a lot of the cases are, are very fascinating and, and, and moving, uh, uh, to me. Uh, and secondly, you know, this was a case that really revolved around uh, the first and only census that's been conducted in Lebanon, the 1932 census. So just by nature of the fact that it revolved around this uh, incredibly important census uh, was really fascinating to me. And this is true, you know, both in its importance for Lebanon but also generally how censuses really structure uh, states, particularly um, to me, what's interesting is the relationship of census bureaucracy and the transition from colonial to post-colonial states. And then third, uh, <laughs> Samira's case or her son's case really provided such a dramatic narrative arc you know, we're talking about hundreds of uh, years of evidence or 100 years of evidence, a little bit more than 100, uh, drawn from and containing the signatures of, you know, two empires or, or documents from two empires, the colonial and post-colonial state, and even within that division, different iterations of that post-colonial state and references to more than one war, um, World War One, World War Two, and the Lebanese Civil War, and the post-war era. So this very dramatic narrative arc 
And for that reason, and for all those reasons that I talked about, uh, this case ended up being a perfect vehicle for the chapter that we often have to write in a book. <laughs> right? We all have to write kind of a version of, quote, like the history chapter uh-huh. or the activating, to sketch out kind of the activating historical context that daily life and practices emerge from. So it was an authorial choice, basically, that made sense to me because it was wrapped around one story over a very long durée and intergenerational struggle over 100 years, uh, living through these really dramatic historical moments and events, uh, including, you know, with the bureaucratic sort of uh, evidence from these historical moments, and where the reason essentially for this very dramatic narrative arc, what's following through it is inheritance. So it's, so it's actually, um, so that was important to me too. And it also allowed me to think critically about the relationship between lies, truth, bureaucracy, and law. Um, and I think it really laid bare the critical nature of sexual difference to these historical moments and bureaucracy ideology and the legal systems that were saturated with sexual difference and grew around them. So that was important to how I ended up conceptualizing sectarianism, and I wanted it to be the case where I first draw out um, that concept, partly also to thread it historically over this long durée. And, and, you know, honestly, I also thought it was uh, very compelling. (laughs) It's a compelling case um and a very dramatic story mm-hmm. yeah well for what it's worth as a reader i also think this authorial choice made a lot of sense and in many ways you know made this history chapter um more compelling <laughs> than it would be maybe without um such a narrative arc so in my next question i'm going to quote you to yourself um So in the book, you tell us that personal status laws produce political difference by tying and untying the knot between sex and sect. So what is at stake for you in making explicit these links between sex, sect, and political difference and doing so through personal status laws? Mm, That's a great question. Um, You know, both... uh you know, uh, expansive and also specific. Uh, I think what's at stake in exploring the relationship or what is at stake is exploring this relationship between sexual and political difference. Uh, And through, you know, specifically exploring it through two structuring, you know, I would say maybe mythological binaries that nation states share, all nation states share, regardless of, uh, you know, location. Uh, And those are the sort of the foundational binary of the private and public spheres to liberalism and uh, the structure of the nation state and the binary of the secular and the religious. So, you know, personal status laws are really iterations of family law, which are global, uh, which exist everywhere in the world. Uh, And I think sometimes 
in the Middle East, they're, they're made particular in a way, or they're exceptionalized in a way that, um, you know, should be sort of expanded or ruptured uh, or thought of critically. Uh, so they are iterations of family law, family law, and I think they really demonstrate the movement between these two structuring binaries, you know, the private public and the secular religious, both in terms of how they are knitted and emerge and, and function within a larger legal bureaucratic system in any given context, uh, including here, you know, how they are enforced, <laughs> regulated, you know, what enforces a personal status law institution uh, decision uh, or who enforces them and how they're regulated, which in my case has to do with this plenary assembly at the Court of Cassation, which has certain jurisdictional issues over personal status courts, but also in terms of how they function, where they come from, you know, their genealogies and how they are partners in the regulation of sexual difference. And I think sometimes personal status laws, again, here are exceptionalized in their fun- in their role in regulating sexual difference. So what I'm trying to do is showing how they're part of a system, um, you know, that is producing and regulating the sectarian difference. I would say I also, personal status laws, I really wanted to think about them explicitly through the lens of biopolitics and political difference precisely through how they regulate sexuality and focus on how this political difference or you know what I call sectarian difference is inherited. So a really important question for me became, you know, there's so much work on sectarianism, uh, really awesome work, great work. Um, and a lot of it has not focused on its biopolitical inherited nature, um, you know, through sort of uh, sexual difference and sexuality. So, and so, for example, again, to offer my myself as an example here, in Lebanon, uh, you know, if you look at you know how I'm categorized according to the state, I'm a I'm a Sunni Muslim, but what actually makes me a Sunni Muslim has nothing to do with what I believe in or my, my religious practice, or even uh, my sense of community and my sense of like, who's an outsider, right? Like who's inside and who's outside. None of that makes any difference to the state. The only thing that makes difference that, that matters to the state is, is what my father was categorized as. So it's an inherited category and it's inherited specifically through, uh, you know, patrilineally and, and, and then his father above, above him. So it's really about sexual difference, gender, and sexuality. Um, so this identity is, or this categorization is inherited bureaucratically, and then it has legal and political ramifications and possibilities. So I think all of these reasons, and you know, sometimes you don't know what comes first, right? Like I was drawn to personal status law, um, and there, then I started thinking about these things, or I was interested in these things, and then I came, that's how I came to personal status law. You know, it all becomes very fuzzy in your brain, like a, like a circle, um, instead of a line. So, and then honestly, I, I find you know, per, and and this is just part of lived experience. Personal status laws are so central to your everyday life. Oh my God, you know, they they really 
they they really kind of determine some of the most consequential um, issues in your life. Uh, so that's sort of the other lived experience reason why I was drawn to them. Wow, thanks so much, Maya, for you know taking us not just through the book, but how you thought through it as you wrote it. Um, I really appreciate that. Uh, and you know, I also want to talk a little bit more about secularism, which you touched upon a little bit. Um, so in your chapter, Centering on Laic Pride, we see how secularism engenders competing regimes of sexual difference, posed as alternative to, but still working through sectarianism. So could you elaborate on how sectarianism broadens our understanding of secularism? Oh, such a small question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm like, How much what time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me everything about the book. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> well, I think, you know, and I hope here that sectarianism as a concept helps us think about how sexual difference and secularism uh you know and religion are are really sort of wrapped together bureaucratically ideologically practically like we were just talking about uh and historically and you know i have to, like my use of the term is inspired by joan scott's thinking and and writing on something she calls secularism right where she traces sort of transitions uh historical transitions around uh secularism and sexual difference and you know What I explore in this chapter is how supposedly competing forms of secularism, you know, state secularism and what I call evangelical secularism, are both entrenched in and articulated uh, through discourses that I, and I would say practices um I just got a phone. Yeah, so both state secularism and evangelical secularism are both kind of um, entrenched and articulated through discourses and practices of sexual difference. So uh, what I mean by that is is sort of the the production regulation of both gender and sexuality, um, but also how certain um, discourses on queer rights or civil marriage uh, and sectarian demographic anxiety in Lebanon really shadows and travels alongside uh, practices and discourses of secularism, both state secularism and evangelical secularism. And you can really see this today, I would say, with uh, in, in the specific case of Lebanon, but also um, <laughs> across the region today and how sexuality specifically and the sort of specter of sexuality um, shadows conversations on secularization or the infringement on cultural uh, cultural uh, specificity, right? National identity. Um, and you can definitely see this, you know, this past summer, um, in the Gulf and in Turkey and in Lebanon, where you had these um, sort of moral panics around sexuality and how they're uh, 
spoken of through a discourse of secularization and anxiety about cultural identity, national cultural identity. Um, yeah. But what I also wanted to show in this chapter, I would say, and I don't want to give too much away, right? Like, uh, but is is actually how, on the other hand, like even like activists for secularism and queer activists also are very agentive people, right? They're not just sort of they are really creating uh, public discourse, public act, public, you know, uh, politics, political pressure points. They are not. Um, and they are in many ways active, active partners really defining the political moments of the day. And I really wanted to try to show that. Yeah, I think that really comes through. And that's another thing I really appreciated in that chapter. Um, again, without giving too much away. <laughs> I have another big one for you. Oh, no. <laughs> and it concerns your concept, the epidermal state. So... Through the epidermal state, you show us that state power works through the materiality of the body. And I'm curious about how working with court archives brought you to the epidermal state. So what is the role of court archives and how state power is felt, understood, produced in a sectarian system? Oh. <laughs> uh, you know, I actually haven't thought about it this way before, about the relationship between like the act of or the experience of archives and the epidermal state. Um, so I would say, you know, archives are very tactile. They're very tactile. Specifically, you know, the archive I work in has, you know, was burned in a fire during the war, was bombed, was rescued, is moldy and stinky and um, in multiple kinds of different locations, which create very embodied practices between archivists and, and archives. So I do think the tactile nature is something that I had been reflecting on throughout the tactile nature of archives and the kind of surprising sometimes nature. So it's not only about the content of the cases, it's also about the form. Um, and I, you know, it also emerges from this, this chapter um, emerges from this question of sovereignty. What is the relationship between sovereignty and violence? Right. And this is a conversation that's happening globally um, and specifically um you know, it has been happening in the Middle East, but also in, in various different locations where there's a certain discourse on sovereignty and political violence. Uh, and I think, you know, we really have to rethink what we think political violence is or where we locate the relationship of violence and sovereignty. So as I was reading these archival files, I really, so much of them contain... Um, so much violence that's legal, bureaucratic, uh, and is really the state exerting or regulating or um, partnering with you know different parastatal actors in the exer in exerting violence, uh, particularly on vulnerable populations. Um, so that's part of how I was thinking about this, and then also the other part of it was. Um, and, you know, this was really important to me in this chapter. And this is where I really try to give an, or suggest that when we are thinking about sexuality 
and its relationship to sovereignty, the state, um, it's really useful to think holistically about sexual difference as a system uh, and, and how it how within that, right, discrete sexualities, discrete genders are being produced and regulated and sort of plotted out on a political economy of vulnerability. So in this chapter, I really try to think, you know, two of those outcomes, heterosexuality and homosexuality and queerness or straightness and queerness together. Uh, and even through throughout that sort of the gendered hierarchies within this um, regulation. So I think here and um, oftentimes the debate over sovereignty and violence, if we center the most marginalized in any political society, and political society is not coterminous with citizens, it's everybody who lives in any given political society. If you focus on the experience of vulnerable groups, the state is almost always fierce, <laughs> always violent, always hyper-interested, right, and interventionist. And that's kind of what I try to show in this chapter, where if you kind of shift our focus towards uh, the experience of vulnerable people and vulnerable groups, uh, the debate on the relationship between violence and sovereignty necessarily has to change because these people have been feeling quote unquote, right, feeling uh, the violence of the state on a very physical embodied level, uh, whether that has to do with, you know, in this chapter, again, the consequences of hymen exams on uh, women, and in this case, on straight women, or uh, anal exams, and in this case, on uh, suspected men who have sex with men, that if you actually think about and you focus the experiences of vulnerable people, uh, I don't think the argument that, you know, there is no sovereignty because there is no state violence or no monopoly on state violence holds at all. Or it only holds if you're looking very narrowly at what constitutes and, and who, the, who the people are that matter in their mm-hmm. experience of violence. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, this chapter was also really hard to write because it, it contained a very, um, you know, difficult subjects. And it was partly informed also by the October 2019 protests um, in Lebanon, where a lot of people were asking, you know, why doesn't, and, um, you know, I mean, like in asking in person and also kind of this tragic hope, right? Like, why isn't the army on our side? Why isn't, why is the security, like, don't, like, they should be on our side, um, the security services. the And I think, you know, any member of any vulnerable group, and I mean this really broadly, um, was very clear. They were never going to, you know, they're always going to be on the side of the state. They're always really uh, fierce and violent and extremely uh, active in the, in the exertion of, and the practice of violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much for sharing that. And I can imagine 
you know, how it must be difficult to write about, uh, but also throughout the research process. And, you know, you gave us so much to think about archival research uh, in terms of archives as tactile things, things that incite feeling. And I want to spend some time thinking about archives with you. So, you know, you really invite us to engage with archives as assemblages made up of people, materials, memories, and so on, as you just illustrated in your response. So I'm really curious about what becomes possible when we shift our understanding of archives from things to assemblages. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, there's a really long, illustrious genealogy of thinking about um, archives ethnographically and um, that kind of intersection right between history and anthropology around method. Um, and I draw a lot of, you know, a lot of my thoughts are emerging from obviously what I've read and what I've engaged with um, and throughout the entire book. Um, but I would say to me, what comes out from or what where this comes from and what it enables, right? This kind of framework. Uh, I think, you know, you have an image of archival research <laughs> before you conduct it, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and maybe, you know, also archival research is probably different, obviously, when you work with different kinds of institutions and different locations and different modes and intensifications of professionalization. You know, I work with state archives, um, I work with legal archives, um, which are not really, you know, which, I mean, and I say this, you know, I describe what they look like and where they are in the book. Um, but, you know, they're not digitized. They're not, uh, they're still, like I was saying, very tactile. Um, they only really make any kind of sense, I would say, through the political economy of the circumstance that they're in, Right. Um, and I think here, what become what became possible for me was a wider ethnographic understanding of the archive and of research in an archive. Uh, and thinking about it in terms of an assemblage really allowed me to focus on the archivists themselves and their authorial power and sort of how this knowledge production actually emerges through partnerships. Um, and how the archive and archival research is critically really linked to their working conditions, to the working conditions of people who actually work there, right? So it's so to a very sort of practical, um, and also I would say to the political economy of the encounter, right, between the researcher and the people who are making that archive possible. Um, and, you know, in the case where I, where I work through difficult shifting working conditions. So, you know, f for example, today, government workers are on strike in Lebanon. They've been on strike for a while. The judiciary is, is almost completely shut down um, because archivists, just in getting to and from work, they're spending all of their salary, right? So they really can't. So that's a very good sort of example of the materiality and the sort of there is no archive if archives aren't coming to work, right? There is no archival research if the ju if the building is shut, right? So that's a sort of very practical example. 
of uh, what I was trying to show. I think when you think about it that way as an assemblage, it also opens the act of research to a sense of arbitrariness or change, right? That even if you do the same act of research twice or three times, each time it's different because the circumstances around it change, right? So there's a sense of arbitrariness. Um, you know, and I always think uh, like in the Cassation Corps archive at the time I was working, uh, there were electricity outages a lot. So there wouldn't be a, a working light bulb in the room. And so the archivist that I was working with, Mona and I would use, um, and I say this, I write about this, uh, like, you know, in uh, lighters that have the little uh, flashlight in them, right? To look for, <laughs> um, you know, what we were looking for uh, when there was no electricity. And of course, today there's also no electricity. Um, and when there's no electricity, there's no air conditioning in a government office in Beirut in the summer. And all of that has an effect, has a very like important effect uh, on research and the knowledge that we produce out of research. So let's say every time I went in, we went into that room, we knew there was going to be electricity. We knew that light bulb was going to turn on and we were comfortable, right? Like physically comfortable. And, uh, you know, that I, I think that actually changes the knowledge that comes out of that research, because to say that it doesn't really poses research as a kind of extractive model where there's only one author, right? The only thing that matters is the person who's doing the research. But I think that most people who have conducted archival research know that that's totally untrue. Um, and I do think, you know, part of my perspective comes from being trained as an anthropologist. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off but yeah absolutely and no i'm so glad you touched upon that because across the book i also kept thinking about the relationships you built around the archives and through the archives especially to me intimacy um, came out as an important and maybe understated current running through the book. So on the one hand, um, 
there are relationships you forge with people who work in the archives or government offices. Um, and on the other hand, there are people in the archives who stayed with you, uh, whom you related across time and space. And all these relationships and intimacies, of course, differ. So I'd love to hear more about what intimacy did for you methodologically and how you navigated multiple forms of intimacy throughout your work. Uh, intimacy is tricky, huh? <laughs> uh, I'm here with the tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I mean, intimacy is tricky because, first of all, it, there's an arbitrariness to it, right? It's, it matters so much to like the particular interactions you have the kind of personalities people have, if you like vibe with them or not. Um, But it's also tricky because intimacy opens yourself up necessarily to hurt, right? And to exclusion in ways. Uh, So they're always sort of operating together, I would say. Um, So I I was, I did, I think, develop... uh, a lot of intimacy with a lot of the people I worked with. You know, I was doing field work for two and a half years. And then, you know, it's also like where home is. So I go there at least twice a year. And I, you know, a lot of these people are have become friends, both uh, ethnog- I mean, in terms of both the ethnographic research and the archival research. Um, so intimacy, I, I would say there's definitely uh, intimacy shaped my work. It also shapes how you present your work, right? Because you are intimate with people. And um, I think, you know, to be like, we have to be honest about how our emotional investments in our work shape our work uh, and, and even our particular interest in certain subjects. In the, in the chapter that you're specifically talking about, um, there's also a kind of intimacy of vulnerability that's there and vulnerability to violence and histories of violence and the kinds of intimacies that really flourish um, around the experience of violence. Uh, you know, and this was personally difficult to write, but I think uh, that's one way that intimacy really shaped my work um, in the archive. And then, you know, there's also kind of gendered, I would say, forms of intimacy where the person that I was working with most closely is a, is a woman archivist who would also show me cases and be like, can you believe this case? This is so, <laughs> you know, what he did to his wife is blah, 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 blah. you know, and she wanted to show it to me. For, and I think these are like particularly gendered also forms of conversation and intimacy. Um, and they're operating at multiple scales. So there's also the intimacy that they have with each other right? That you're also entering into. So you really have kind of like a Venn diagram of these forms of intimacies and how they intersect and depart. And it was sometimes difficult to navigate. Um, What I found was almost counterintuitive, that sometimes intimacy is reflected by who you can argue with, right? The person that you can argue with most is, is actually an intimate Right, like if you can get into a serious political debate or a serious, uh, just whatever, right, uh, debate slash argument, uh, and then continue, that's actually a sign of deep intimacy. 
Uh, and that's something that what seemed counterintuitive to me, but definitely became evident uh, as I was doing my research, you know, both my ethnographic and my archival research. So both with activists and um, in government institutions. Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't thought enough about that. And then there's like obvious thing, right? Like there's a story about my parents in the book. <laughs> so that's a very obvious uh, kind of how intimacy inflects the book. Uh, but I will say, you know, generally the cases that I work with, because I was focusing on conversion cases and jurisdiction issues, so conflict between personal status courts, and because I was in the court that I'm in, which is the highest court, um, you really are granted a view into the most horrible moments of people's lives, right? Because of the nature of the cases you're looking with. So, and again, right, to be intimate is to expose yourself to vulnerability, to hurt. Um, and you're, you have a view and, and you know you're not an intended reader. That's the other thing, right? Like you're not an intended reader into, again, some of the most horrible moments of people's lives. So how do you develop a relationship with that material in a way that is respectful, open, but also honest about um, that relationship and its riskiness when it comes to intimacy? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how does one write about it, right? Um I have no idea. I tried to. I tried to figure it out. We'll see. I'm still thinking about it. How you write about it? But yeah, I mean, I think it's great that you know. I think a very rich book um, poses more questions for us to keep pondering, especially about how we write and how we engage. So I think that's really rich. Um, and you know your discussion of intimacy made me think back about the question of access that you mentioned earlier in our conversation um so i'm wondering can you speak to how you think about access and sort of how it reverberates in academia and what does you know access maybe as a discourse uh prominent in academia enable any race Another small question. Uh, (laughs) Well, I think, you know, as anthropologists, we are, uh, you know, and anthropology is a field that has had like several uh, crises of identity (laughs) as a discipline that is kind of, uh, you know, compulsively interrogating its origins yeah <laughs> uh, so so we so we know you know we were also trained to think very critically about the question of access mm-hmm. I mean and you know some of us are more trained than not <laughs> to think about that um, you know and it's obviously not only anthropologists but I think it's a heightened question in anthropology so and you know, oftentimes when we are uh, having that conversation about access, we talk about positionality a lot and, and positionality in ways that are kind of in structural, but also individualized, right? Um, and we talk about sort of global power relationships and histories of empire and colonialism and location, 
Um, and I wanted to be honest about that. And, and of course, we talk so much about like native slash, mm. you know, non-native mm-hmm. anthropology. <laughs> I mean, it's such a weird term. I, I'm sure there's a better, people have come up with a better term, right? Is there a better term than native are people still know. using native anthropologists? Outsider, insider, I guess. Outsider, debatable? insider. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's also debatable. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be honest about that, right? But also show that it, even that is not simple. So actually, obviously, being an insider gave me certain kinds of access, even in terms of knowing when to push back, right? And, and um, you know, I think in some ways being an insider makes it easier to have arguments with people, but also it's drawbacks because automatically you're positioned in a very specific way that actually excludes you from a lot of different, um, you know, research settings or possibilities. And I think uh, this inclusion, exclusion can be both in terms of location, but also in terms of gender, right? Uh, so if you're conducting research with somebody or you're conducting a life history and you're following this person and they try to pick you up, right, or sexually harass you, that's a very specific <laughs> form of this question of, <laughs> you know, again, like intimacy, vulnerability, access, yeah. and exclusion, right? Or, and this happened to me, uh, I was going to uh, the Sunni personal status court a lot and just going and like watching, right? Like what they tell you to do in grad school, like just go and sit there with your notebook. Uh, And it was great. It was a lot of fun. And I was given, you know, partly this access was, okay, I had grown up in this area where the court was. Again, I am a Sunni Muslim and my name is recognizably Sunni Muslim. So, and because... Muslim personal status courts are state institutions. They cannot, they're not allowed to discriminate against you, right? Like everybody has to be able to go in regardless. But again, there's layers there of access and intimacy. So I was sitting there, you know, on the other side of this big room. um, And that was, you know, a kind of already um, pronounced access. Uh, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching these things happening and I'm talking to the sheikh across this big room and the kid and the clerk um, and all of that. And then this uh, foreign, yani foreign, uh, like Western um, <laughs> anthropologist comes in who had also been conducting research in that court, right? And he was a man. And, uh, you know, the sheikh stood up and he was like, hey, And, and, you know, this person became a good friend of mine and, you know, um, his work is really wonderful. Um, and I use it in my book. So he stood up, uh, and the sheikh was like, oh, hey, X, X, X. Oh, it's been so long. And he like hugged him. Right. And he was like, no, no, no. Come sit next to me. Come sit next to me. Uh, so that's a different, you know, like all of these things that they're not, they're not binary is what I'm trying to say. They're highly, uh, <laughs> intersectional uh, and then when it came to the actual government archive uh there was sort of a compounding and i think this is the ways that we're used to talking about anthropology um although we need to be less binaristic um but i but what we're not really used to talking about or 
maybe we should just talk more about is the kind of access that the institutions that you travel through give you, right? So I was working in a government uh, institution and I had previously met uh, a very, 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 very high ranking jurist um, at a talk at uh, Columbia Law School and I got my PhD at Columbia. So and um, I, had been, I was then invited with him, actually, after having argued with him by my law professor, because I was taking a seminar there, um, out for drinks. And this guy, you know, like very high flying, very, you know, he's lectured at Ivy League institutions. He was there on like some judicial exchange program. Uh, and we connected in large part through also uh, forms of uh, elitism, right? Great privilege in the academic world, um, and and that and and his deep respect, deep 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 respect uh, for the professor that I was taking this class with and that we were having drinks with. Uh, so that's a kind, and this professor is also, you know, very well placed. Um, let's say so that's a kind of access that we're not necessarily used to talking about, which is how institutions travel with us and how forms of prestige and class within these institutions travel with us. And then I was confronted with a totally different form of intimacy and access when I actually got there when, you know, this person sent me to the archive and said, you know, tell him that I tell them that I sent you. And then it turned out that the person that I was working, that I would be working most closely with was my aunt's neighbor, and that we were from the same neighborhood, right? So that's a totally different form of, and I think sometimes we're we're more trained to talk about that one, right? And less critical or reflective of the former. Um, yeah, so that's sort of one way about access and merit um, because I think there's kind of a fetishization in the academy generally about like difficult research, right? So how did you do this incredibly difficult research in this incredibly difficult place or difficult to access archives? And then that becomes less about circumstance and more about the sort of uh, merit of the individual scholar, right? Who was able to do that. And obviously people who there's gendered and classed and racial intersections to that. But we do have a fetishization of like these very difficult places. Um, and so people who are able to conduct research or this idea of firstness, right? I'm the first person to do this. I'm the first person in this archive. <laughs> and that becomes synonymous almost uh, with the production of that individual person. And there's very concrete um, or sometimes very concrete uh, outcomes of that when it comes to careers, um, and, you know, <laughs> an academic life within a crumbling institution called the academy. Uh, <laughs> so I think that's part of it. Um, and I will say, mm, yeah, um, you know, in some ways, when I was doing my archival research in the court of cassation, I was really struck and I was a very anxious grad student, right? And like, uh, this is right after, you know, they're like, there are their own jobs. There's no this, there's no that. Tenure is gone. Tenure is, you know, and this has only gotten worse since I was in grad school. Uh, and, you know, government workers are actually having the same problems. Tenure is under attack, right? Uh, the tenure of archivists was being directly attacked at the time of my research, where they really wanted 
the government wanted to change the nature of public ser- public jobs, right, or jobs in the civil service away from tenure and towards like easily fireable and exchangeable employees, which obviously resonates so much. We have a shared kind of pressure on this idea of tenure exchangeability uh, and shifting natures of employment. And I think these shifts have deep epistemological effects. They're not only economic or so that's part, some of the ways that I really tried to think about this question of access, merit, and, uh, you know, what actually brings us together. So also de-exceptionalizing the academy as a job, right? Like, it is a job. Other people have jobs, too. <laughs> and there's actually a lot of conversation that can happen around that de-exceptionalization. Yeah, that's what I would say. Um, <laughs> well, we really appreciate the reminder that no, but I think it's very important to remind that you know it is a job, and it's not just you know empty surface that enables us to do research, but you know has very specific epistemic and structural um, consequences. So I really appreciate that both in the book and just now. <laughs> and I mean, just like you know, it's really shot through the process. Uh, because, you know, like I said, I was there for two and a half years, and that was totally enabled by the fact that I had, you know, first I have I had um, gotten grants, right? More than one grant, which really gave me a, a big budget in relation to the cost of living and how people lived, right? Uh, so, um, you know, I was definitely not a, quote, starving graduate student when I was in doing my research. Um, I was, you know, very, like, if you compared my grant income to government workers, right, I probably had a slightly higher income to the people I was working with who had been government workers in the civil service for decades, right? Uh, So, and then that, you know, access to grants also has a lot of intersections uh, with power and who the people are writing your letters are and what institutions are where and So it's really kind of all shot through the process. You know, I also had, I mean, I'm a dual citizen, Lebanese and American, so my mobility was highly diffuse. Um, Or (laughs) that's not the right word. I was hypermobile, I should say. (laughs) Uh, So I think all of those aspects should be reflected on, and they do really shape the out knowledge itself, how knowledge is produced. Absolutely. And, you know, your response really shows us that positionality is really a multi-layered and not just, you know, this neat, um, you know, schema or like categories that we have to check the boxes <laughs> off. Um, so yeah. I, appreciate I mean, I tried that. to go into some Christian churches and there was just no way. And I'm sure that had I been, you know, not Lebanese, not locatable, I wouldn't have had to be from the same religious sect to get into those places, right? So it's a, it's a, it is a very, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, my last question <laughs> can be either an easy one or a difficult one, depending uh, on how you take it. There are no easy ones, man. Come on, <laughs> look at all these questions. Nothing easy. 
Well, lastly, what is next for you? What are some projects or questions that you're interested in right now? Uh, so I have sort of two ongoing research projects. Uh, one is anchored in Lebanon and, and emerging from this, uh, the, this archive that I work in in the Court of Cassation. And the other is uh, located um, in the United States and in the settler colonial history of the, uh, and present of the United States. Um, and I would say both these projects are really linked to sectarianism in their methodology and epist- like epistemological approach to the question of archival and ethnographic research. Um, where I really do think of, you know, excess destruction, uh, the authorial, like who, who, the question of who an author is when we do this kind of research um, and how to complicate that question. Uh, so my next project that I actually just came back from a research trip on is linked to uh, family archives um, on my mother's side of the family. And, you know, I'll start with it. I'll just give a small story (laughs) as to how this uh, project came about. Uh, My aunt sent my mom like a PDF story downloaded from (laughs) Ancestry.com like four years ago. And she just said, oh, this is our great, this is our great, great aunt. So my mom sent it, forwarded it to me and I read it and I was like, wow, this is, um," and it was basically uh, a very short edited story of an Ojibwe woman in the 19th century uh, who was, you know, writing, quote, a history of her little life. Um, And then, you know, I started, I was fascinated by the story and how the hell it ended up on Ancestry.com by uploaded by someone who had no relation to any of those various intersections. So I started doing research on it. And what I found was that actually, uh, this woman, Eliza Morrison, her story had been published four times previously as books, all by like non-native editors slash scholars slash co-authors, right? And, <laughs> and had been presented. And it, and it is really an amazing sort of biography. Um, so I located the archive, I located all those, and I this just came back from an archival trip um, and an ethnographic trip from our shared um, like where my family are enrolled members of the reservation and have homes there where she was also in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so I found all these really fascinating connections. So that's sort of my, my, my next project is trying to think about all these uh, multiple scenes of publication, let's say, of this woman um, and how her life story came to be and how it circulates and doesn't circulate and where it's held and in terms of the specific archive. Um, yeah, so that's sort of <laughs> what I just came back from doing. You can tell I'm, I'm a little excited about it. Uh, so that's sort of the my one of my next projects. And the other is, is really from, I have like five cases from the Cassation Court that, because I've been also doing research in Beirut uh, when I go back, when the judiciary is open. Um, 
sort of five cases taken from the different historical junctures in Lebanon, and it threads through this question of sectarianism across these different court cases, um, which I won't, you know, mention what cases they are, uh, but they're very sort of paradigmatic, I would say, cases. <laughs> well, so. these are all so exciting, Maya. We'll be looking forward to, you know, the books that can come out of these projects, and hopefully we'll have you back to ask you the tough Maybe questions. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Maya, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much, Alize, for this conversation, <laughs> this this very uh, simple, pleasant conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I look forward to more. <laughs> inshallah. Inshallah. You know, inshallah can also be like, it's funny, right? Like, inshallah. Like, yeah, it's very serious. Inshallah, right? Or it can be like, no way. Inshallah, inshallah. Like, yeah. Well, only time will tell. <laughs> only time will tell. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of sectarianism, sovereignty, secularism, and the state in Lebanon, published by Stanford University Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.